Good morning, and Happy New Year's Eve. I'm not the pastor here. I'm a member of the congregation, and I'm also a member of a group of men called Preacher's Fellowship. Uh, it's made up of lay members of our church uh, that preach when Pastor Mike does not. Mike will resume our series from First and Second Samuel next week. Normally, the message from this podium uh, is given as a part of a series as we look at a much larger portion of Scripture, usually a book of the Bible. And normally, each sermon uses a chunk uh, of that portion of Scripture as its text. If you've been here the last four weeks of Advent, you know that Pastor Mike took a break from our Samuel series to look into select sections of the Gospel of John. Rather than tackle a chunk of scripture, he, in each message, he had a laser focus on just one verse. Additionally, if you were here this last summer when I preached, rather than take on a smaller digestible portion of scripture, you may remember that I read six chapters from the prophet Amos. That was a big chunk. Well, I appear to be at it again. According to this first slide, I'm teaching three books of the Bible. So my advice to you is to get comfortable. <laughs> I know that we have another church using this building later today, so I'll be aware of that. Today is a unique day, being the last day of the year. It offers us the opportunity, really, to have two perspectives at once we can simultaneously look back at this past year, 2023, and look forward to this next year, 2024. With that dual perspective, I believe we can look back at the past year with thanksgiving and look forward to the next year with confidence. Thanksgiving you might incredulously ask, you obviously do not mow, know my year. Well, whether you might summarize your past year as a good year, or as a bad year, or as a really good year, or as a really bad year, I know that when honestly assessing our year before our Lord, we all are keenly aware of how he has provided for us through it all. Amen? Okay, so what's with these three books listed up here on the screen? Well, rather than look at one location biblically as our text for what the Holy Spirit might want us to hear today, I thought it might be instructive and beneficial to look at one location geographically. That is, one place on our planet where we see God consistently providing. We will see him providing three different things. These three things are arguably the most important theological concepts we can consider. Because of this, they will not be new. And I think that's okay. While preparing for this sermon, I was encouraged as I read from this 
book that John Piper wrote, this little booklet, The Dawning of Indestructible Joy, that we were invited to go through this Christmas season. In his preface, on page 8, he says, What you and I need is usually not brand new teaching. Brand new truths are probably not truths. What we need are reminders about the greatness of the old truths. We need someone to say an old truth in a fresh way. Uh Uh-oh. Or sometimes just to say it. Oh, good. That's the setup. Now let's look at the three concepts that all appear in one geographical place, yet in three different books of the Bible. But first, will you pray with me, please? Good morning, Lord. We are grateful that you provided for us this past year, and we do want to enter this new year with the confidence that only your continued providence brings. Please use me, and more importantly, your word, to communicate your old truths today. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Chris started off with our first text in Genesis. Rather than reread the passage that we all just heard, I want to focus on just a couple of verses that show the first concept. Grace. The story is pretty intense and filled with parallels of God sacrificing his own son. Abraham had been told to go to the region or district of Moriah. There he climbed up a mountain selected by God, or what we privileged few, spoiled residents living on the feet of the mighty Sierra Nevada mountains might call a hill. Once Abraham passes the test and demonstrates his faith in and devotion to God by being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, there's now a need for a substitute sacrifice. Abraham only brought the knife, the wood, and the fire. God provided the ram. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Genesis 22, 13 and 14. So what exactly did God provide? A ram, I know. But let's look a little harder. God provided exactly what Abraham needed at that moment. Abraham clearly understood that from his response. We called what happened there on a mountain in Moriah, grace. We receive God's grace when we receive good things that we do not deserve. Have you received good things from God this past year? that you did not deserve? Not a ram caught in a thicket, but what you needed at that moment. 
God loves us, so he loves to give us good things. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That we are cared for by a loving Father that lavishes grace upon grace on us is truly remarkable and is absolutely necessary for our very survival. But it doesn't end there. Let's look at our next text in 1 Chronicles 21. The same event is recorded in 2 Samuel, but since we haven't got there in our sermon series, and I don't want to be a spoiler, we'll look at the 1 Chronicles 21 account. I think it can be more helpful if you follow along with me as I read this rather large passage. You'll find it on page 326 in the church Bibles, under the chairs, on the racks, in front of you. There's the reference. First Chronicles 21, 7 through 30. Quick background. David has just sinned. No, not with Bathsheba. Not in his poor parenting. But by conducting a census of able-bodied fighting men. Now, counting warriors before warfare is not a sin. And it's generally perceived to be a good idea. Again, looking to Jesus, he put it this way in Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. But David wasn't getting ready for war. So this counting that took Joab the better part of a year to complete didn't serve a military purpose. It appears to be a sin of pride. At any rate, David has to choose his consequence for his sin. Let's look at that portion together, starting at verse 7. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one for... Lost my place. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord 
destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the side of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it, and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David poured, paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Okay, that was a big text. So I want to put just a portion on the screen and reread it. First Chronicles 21, 13, and 15a, or 2, 15a. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. God's mercy, clearly shown here, 
is the second important thing that he provides to us. We receive God's mercy when we do not receive bad things that we do deserve. I'll ask you again. Have you not received bad things from God this past year that you fully deserved? Maybe a destroying angel did not stay his sword above your head. But aren't you regularly thanking God for his mercy? We know that this place, Ornan's threshing floor, was on Mount Moriah. Whether it was the, the mountain in Moriah where Abraham sacrificed the ram, the Bible doesn't say. Jewish tradition says it was. Theologians, who apparently will argue over just about anything, not surprisingly argue that it was the exact spot and that it was not. We can at least agree that it's the same area and move on. What we do know is that it is at this exact place, Ornan's threshing floor on Mount Moriah, that the temple was later built. Second Chronicles 3.1 tells us that. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. There, that settles that. Perhaps now you know where we are headed for the third and final important, no, critical theological concept that God provides on Moriah. We are headed to the temple in Jerusalem. Specifically, it's the very same day that our Lord was crucified. You'll find this passage on page 801 of our church Bibles. That's in Mark 15, 21 to 39. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait 
Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Included in all four Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is comparatively a very brief account. All but John include not only what was happening on Golgotha at the cross, but also what happened in the temple at the very moment of Christ's substitutionary death. Did you see it? Mark 15, 37 to 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This symbolic event is very significant for two reasons. One, the direction of the tear. It's included in all three Gospels. It was from the top down. God condescended. He initiated the act. Two, the torn curtain opens the way of access to the previously restricted Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant rested. From Leviticus 15, we read, verses 15 and 16, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. This happens once a year on the Day of Atonement. The top cover of the ark, the mercy seat, was covered with blood. Atonement originally meant covering. While the Hebrew word was used some 110 times in the Old Testament, it is replaced with the Greek word that we translate as reconciliation in the New Testament. This event reconciled the broken relationship between God and man because of sin, and it was done once a year by a sinful Levitical high priest with goat's blood. But sinless Jesus, with his own blood, needed to do it only once. Consider Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What did that more perfect, more lasting atonement 
that was accomplished on the cross and represented on Moriah do for us? The writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 10, verses 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We receive God's atonement when we are forever reconciled and have access to God. Just look at all that that God provided on Moriah. Grace, mercy, atonement. And he still provides it for us today. Doesn't this give us reason to both pause in thankfulness for his providence in our lives in 2023 and confidence to trust him into 2024? You might object. This has all been interesting and affirming that the Lord provides all three of these things on Mount Moriah. But it's so many verses from so many places in Scripture. That is true. Thus far, we've read 89 verses from nine separate passages. Wouldn't it be convenient if all three concepts were neatly represented in just one verse? And wouldn't it be helpful if that one verse were familiar to most everyone? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gave his son. He gave us something good that we did not deserve. What's that called, church? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Even though sinful, we do not receive the bad thing that we do deserve. What's that called, church? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life eternal life. We are forever reconciled and have access to God. What's that called, church? Well, that's what I wanted to bring to you today. As a postscript, because now the sermon's done, one could add that there is a fourth theological concept taking place right now on Mount Moriah. With the temple destroyed and a Muslim mosque replacing it that is forbidden to all Jews, well, that concept is God's judgment 
and another sermon. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for providing grace, mercy, and atonement on Mount Moriah and to every one of us this past year. We know we will continue to need these old truths anew as we go into this next year filled with its yet unknown challenges and opportunities. Thank you for the confidence only you provide to our clean hearts with the full assurance of our faith in you. Amen.